You're listening to Return Again, where we look at Aliyah through the lens of Olim who have lived in Israel long enough to have perspective. I'm Goel Jasper, and my guest today is David Haivri. David grew up in New York in a family of four. Israel and Aliyah were nowhere near their consciousness, but then David's father got the bug. Fast forward a few years, and the family moved to Israel, where they struggled mightily to make a go of it. David is a major Aliyah success story, but it was not as rosy for the rest of his family, all of whom eventually went back to the U.S. So how did David succeed when the rest of his family couldn't make it happen? Well, let's just say that Shabbat meals can do amazing things for a young teen looking for inspiration. David and I sat in Yerushalayim recently, where he reflected quite candidly on his story. Here's David Haivri returning again. exactly know how to say this because I'm not clear whether you're David or David Haivri. I know Haivri. That much I know. What should I call you? Ha- Haivri is right and David or David is fine. Okay. Both, both are okay. For many years, and I guess that this is relevant to the, the program, to the discussion we're having, Yeah. Um, for many years it was very important for me to be David and uh, I found it irritating if people would call me David. Right. Surely Israelis, if Israelis were calling me David, I found it irritating uh, because I did not want to be that newcomer who just right, got off right. the boat. Uh, but uh, as I uh, matured, I realized that it, uh, both are fine and I'm comfortable with both. I introduced myself as both. and So you can call me David <laughs> and you can call me David and all is good. I think I'm going to go with David. Very I good. Think I think. But, but let's, let's go back many years. You were 11 years old, correct? Yes, that is, that is correct. My so, family made Aliyah when I was a child. It was in 1978. Yeah, this is this was right after the peace deal with with. Uh, it was with right. Egypt. It was right after the signing yeah. of the peace agreement with yeah. Egypt. But it was, of course, in the works for for some time before right, that. Right. So it was before and after, and we we arrived after. Yeah. So so let's talk about your before and after. What 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 was it like growing up? I imagine your last name back then wasn't Haivri. That, that is correct. So in the, in the, what was the name? My, my born name in America was <laughs> yeah. Jason David Axelrod. So you were Jason as a kid? That is right. Until age 11. Okay, so in Axelrod House, what place did Israel occupy in like the, the vibe in your house? I mean, I don't know how much you remember, but 11 is old enough to remember a lot. You know, I, I remember... And, uh, uh, and I, I, uh, growing up uh, throughout my life, I uh, review this, uh, the whole situation. And uh, yes, I, I uh, remember what it was before we came and after we came and where this, all, this whole idea of Israel came from. And uh, in my family, in my immediate family and my extended family, right. uh, this whole idea of... Um, making Aliyah, coming to Israel, was, uh, was pretty revolutionary in our surroundings. You grew up where? Well, I was born in New York, in Far Rockaway, okay. New York. Right. Uh, and uh, I grew up in Long Beach, New York, which is two towns over. Right. 
uh, pretty close. Um, and uh, my, uh, my extended family on both sides, my mom and dad, were very American, um, uh, secular, uh, assimilated Jews. Well, wow. uh, that's the, the story of, of that's the, their upbringing. Their upbringing yeah. and, and my extended family and, and really my uh, upbringing um, until my family, until my dad became a Zionist and decided to bring our family to Israel. It was pretty unusual <laughs> in, in our family. And um, really most of this, um, most of our extended family never picked this up. Only in recent times have I, I discovered some uh, long lost distant cousins. Interesting. Uh, who are also uh, pretty unique in, in their families right. uh, and have uh, moved to Israel and become Israelis. So what was, what was the scenario that played out? You mentioned it, that, that your family was basically secular in Long Beach and then well, your dad just didn't come home one day and say, hey, we're moving to Israel, gang, right? <laughs> like, what, what happened? Um, kind of, you could say. <laughs> you could say that he uh, came home one day and said, we're moving to Israel. Not, it wasn't one day. It was a series of, of days and uh, exploration for, for my dad, uh, discovering that he wanted to be more connected with the Jewish, uh, Jewish community that was not really um, uh, present in uh, our extended families. I mean, our families would, uh, would celebrate the, the Passover meal together uh, in the diaspora there are two nights of right. the passover meal so it's very common that uh, people who do not observe the shabbat who drive would spend one evening with the one family and yeah. the next evening with the other family to right. commemorate the passover haggadah uh, and uh, it was very obvious in our family that we were jewish um, but it was more uh, tradition folklore um, um, noticing uh, Jewish personalities on TV yeah, or in right. the ball games. Oh, that guy is Jewish, or that right. guy is married to a Jewish girl, or throwing around Yiddish words, um, uh, Jewish foods. Yeah, was our uh, Jewish uh, experience. And uh, then uh, my dad, in the um, mid seventies, um, had this calling to uh, be more connected with the. A Jewish community, uh, my parents started becoming involved in a reform synagogue hmm. in Long Beach, which was pretty unusual in our larger family. Even, even to be affiliated with a reform? Yeah, even to be wow. affiliated with something religious. Yeah. Um, it wasn't very present. In the, uh, and they became active and they were involved in... Um, going to a temple for Friday night or community events. And uh, my dad got involved in the fight for Soviet Jewry right. and uh, became interested in the JDL and Rabbi Kahana uh, and Chabad. So it was a, a process for him. And we, we were kids in a family and we were all part of his uh, process. And at uh, some point he... Uh, 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 he and my mom went to Israel, came to Israel, or here. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> for a pilot trip, they were active in the Aliyah movement. They met with a group of people to come to Israel to check out the scene in Israel uh, and uh, learn about their uh, opportunities here. That was uh, somewhere in 
1975. Right. And by 1978, uh, we packed up and moved. What were you into as a kid before you moved here? Like, what, what was the average day like for Jason Axelrod? Um, family, our extended family, we were very close. My grandparents lived in Farakaway. All of my cousins at that time lived nearby. Uh, we would spend time with them, uh, go to the beach, uh, go shopping, yeah. uh, come home, watch TV, right. watch some more TV. Like the American dream, right? right. <laughs> go, to, go to school, come home, watch some more TV, go bowling, right. go to the beach. Family, friends, uh, school. So when, you're, when your dad started in with this whole Israel thing, do you remember how you processed that? I, my dad was my hero. He, oh, okay. he was the ideologue. He was, uh, made decisions and was uh, doing exciting things. And uh, so I was very excited about the, the process. The, not a lot of people around us were, were as excited as he was. Right. It seemed to be a, a crazy, crazy idea to uh, pick up and go to a, a foreign country. And uh, why are you going there? And what, what, what do you expect to happen there? And how are you going to get by? And, but he was pretty set in, the, in the, this idea and uh, made the plans. At that time, we're talking about the mid-70s. Uh, we arrived in Israel at the end of the 70s and really began our uh, Israel experience, you could say, in the, the 80s, the beginning of right. the 80s. Right. Israel at that time was very different than it is today. Making Aliyah was very different than it is today. The Aliyah crowd, it, as I remember it, was very different than the Aliyah crowd today. So what does that mean? Well, first of all, there was no nefesh benefesh. Sure. It did not exist right. at that time. There was only the, the support or process was directly through the Jewish agency. Right. Uh, so people who wanted to make Aliyah did not have that organization that was uh, providing them with the support and uh, experience and, and know-how and, uh, and... And access. And access. <laughs> right. and, and of course, there was no internet and no Facebook. Uh, and Israel was, was much smaller at that time. Not in, not in size geographically. Israel was actually much larger, much larger. at that time. Yeah. Because we had the, the Sinai was also part of Israel. And that was even one of the, my... My father's ideas was to go and live in Yamit. Really? At that time, Menachem Begin, the prime minister, had said that when he retires, he will go and live in Yamit. And that was my, first, my dad's first destination, although it never, never really went through. And there was the peace process, and, and Israel pulled out of the Sinai. But Israel was much smaller as far as infrastructure, as everything was smaller then. The yeah. supermarkets were grocery stores. Right. The streets, the roads were, were much narrow, narrower. The buses were, there was no air conditioning in the buses. The buses were, were very narrow and small and packed. And there was no, we, we take for granted today, we have the apps. So it's very easy <laughs> for us to get around. We, we check with Move It and sure. we can see our schedule right. and leave home exactly on time and, and get <laughs> the bus and know where our connection is. But all of that technology wasn't there. Right. So you would have to try to figure out without, a, without Hebrew and stand in a bus, a bus and wait for a bus to come and then try to ask the bus driver if he's going where you're, you want to go. And in many cases, the bus driver 
did not have a common language with you. Right. So every, everything was uh, much simpler. Um, more complicated because it was simpler. Yeah, right? much complicated because. So I, I, want, I want to get to that, but I want to stay, if it's okay, I want to stick with, I want to stick with the before for a little longer. Mm -hmm. Because I remember when I was a kid, we, um, my parents got divorced and, and we wound up moving away from the town where we had lived, Stamford, Connecticut, when I was 11 and moved to Philadelphia. So my move was very different from your move. But 11, that's kind of an important age because that's the beginning of the transition from kid to adolescent. And I want to know what it was like for you at the end of the school year, I imagine you left in the summer, at the end of that school year when you were 11, saying goodbye to your friends, maybe you were a loner, I, I don't know, but like, what was it like for you to, I understand your dad was your hero and it was, if it's something he wants, it's something I want, um, but, but there was still the social aspects of growing up as a kid in New York. Yes. Uh, we actually moved um, about a month or two before the end of the school year. Oh, interesting. I was in the fifth grade. I think that the, the original plan was actually to leave a month or two earlier. And there was some kind, some kind of paperwork or something that had to do with the process through the Jewish agency for the, the time schedule. And it was postponed for a short time. Our family owned a home in Long Beach. They wanted to sell the home, but they, they rented it out. And mm. we, we already needed to move out. So we stayed with my grandparents for some weeks before we right. actually made the move. I was a, a, I and my brother, who's younger than I am, was younger than I am. He passed away last year. We went to public school in Long Beach. I remember in my class, my, my friends, uh, my class had a, a big going away party for me. Right. It was, a, of course, unusual for kids in the, the fifth grade that someone was going away. Not to mention an, a foreign country. To a foreign, that's right, going yeah. away to a foreign country. And uh, in the middle of the school year, it was very uh, emotional and uh, exciting. And uh, it kind of cut off right there in the in the middle of the year. So it wasn't in the middle of the, say, summer break where you end the year and then you just don't show up again at the right. beginning of the year, but it was right there in the middle and kaboom. Right. And then, uh, well, we'll talk about Israel, but we arrived here and then starting all over. Did you try to keep in touch with any of your friends when you got here? Um, I don't think that... Uh, that I had much uh, means of communication <laughs> with my friends in the fifth grade in 1978. We had no uh, social media and cell phones and uh, internet. Uh, um, phone calls were very expensive at that yeah. time. Having a phone at home was not available to everyone, uh, not for us as Olim Chadashim, as right. newcomers. We didn't have a phone at home for some time. Calling overseas was a, was a whole operation. At that, at that time, public phones in Israel operated by a, a asimonim. How do you say asimonim in English? <laughs> uh, uh, tokens. Tokens. There were, there were special tokens. Yeah. for. You had to go and stand in line at the post office 
and uh, then buy the tokens and then you could use the, the tokens to call on a public phone. But to call America, you, you have to have <laughs> like a hundred tokens <laughs> to make the call and you could call a reverse the charges. In Hebrew, it's called guvaina. Right, you, a collect call. You can make a collect call. Yeah. But uh, of course, that wouldn't work for fifth graders. <laughs> so I, I traveled back to the States uh, sometimes to visit and I met with some of my, my uh, elementary friends, my friends, schools, school, friends from school. But in general, I didn't stay in touch. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you land. Where, where did you guys go? Where, where was the first place you lived in Israel? I imagine it was a Merkaz Klita. Yes, we, we came to Israel. And uh, I guess that this was all prearranged with the Jewish agency. Yeah. That uh, we... Uh, would be staying at a Merkaz Krita in Haifa. Uh, my parents had friends who were with them on the pilot uh, tour to uh, Israel with the Jewish agency who had already made Aliyah and they were already living in Haifa. Right. So that might have been the reason that they chose the Merkaz Krita, although it wasn't in a, a nearby neighborhood in Haifa, but still it was closer. And uh, we had uh, no family at all in Israel, didn't know anyone. <laughs> uh, so we arrived and uh, those friends uh, picked us up with their van at the airport in the afternoon when we landed and took us to stay at their home that night. I woke up the next morning and I looked out the window and everything was so bright. You still remember that? Yeah, it was just so bright. It was a, a new neighborhood with um, apartment buildings, and um, so the, the buildings were like a very white, yellow, yeah. and, and the sun was very bright in comparison to, to uh, New York. And the menu, the food was, was strange, was different. And then we moved into the Merkaz Krita, which was like a, we were a, a family of four, mom and dad, and, and two little boys, 11 years, I was 11, and my brother was nine or eight, and it was a, a tiny little compartment that uh, we stayed in. Right. And uh, <laughs> there we met uh, other people who made Aliyah, some from the United States, some from Russia, uh, some from Argentina, uh, some from England. And they had a ulpan at the Merkaz Krita for the adults. Uh, and uh, my brother and I started going to a, it was, it was before the end of the school year. Right. So they... Uh, they just threw you into the classrooms. They placed us right into wow. the closest uh, school. Yeah. And the school wasn't really equipped for <laughs> dealing with uh, kids who just got off the boat and don't speak Hebrew. They tried uh, to uh, give us uh, additional support learning learning Hebrew, and we spent a lot of time in class, which was my story for the next couple of years. I spent a lot of time in class just being present, right? but not really taking in what was going on. Uh, I would imagine it would be nearly impossible if they don't have the support to get you up to speed and you're not four years old. I imagine your brother had an easier time than you did those first couple of years. You know, he actually did. My, my brother was not... Both my, my mother and my brother were not really on board with the whole moving to Israel hmm. uh, idea. Right. Uh, and uh, a short time after 
uh, after we arrived in Israel, uh, my parents split up and uh, wow. they divorced. And within two or three years, my mother and my brother went back oh, to wow. the United States. Uh, but uh, my brother actually uh, integrated much, is much easier than I did. Yeah. He picked up the language very quickly. He made friends with Israelis very quickly. He was doing well in school. Well, he was brilliant anyway, uh, but uh, he, uh, he did very well, but he, he wasn't really into the whole Israel idea. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he went back. So I imagine as a result, you and your father became very close to each other. Uh, we were very close, and uh, my, my dad was my hero, yeah. and, uh, and I was uh, convinced that coming to Israel was a, a great idea, and, and I still think it's a great idea, uh, but uh, I'm, the, I'm personally the success of the, the whole Aliyah idea, as I did into, ultimately integrate into Israel, right. became an Israeli, established my own Israeli family. Um, but it, was, um, it wasn't easy. What did your dad do for a living when you guys came here? When we came, uh, my dad did not really have a... He didn't really have a profession that was um, compatible. Right. Translatable, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. In the, the United States, uh, his last um, profession was a plumber. Uh, my grandfather was a, a plumber in the United in the United States. Plumbing is a licensed profession. Yeah. Uh, so my grandfather was a master plumber, hmm. and uh, and my dad was a licensed plumber. But all the, all of the standards, the American standards, were very different than the Israeli standards. Uh, the equipment, the materials, the and of course the language. Um, so that really wasn't a, much of an option for him. He worked in sales. Uh, he worked in labor. He uh, worked in a factory, in a high-tech factory for some time, uh, and became a, a store owner. Interesting. Doesn't get more Israeli than that. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but it sounds like it wasn't easy. It was not easy. Yeah, it wasn't easy at all. It was, uh, you know, we're working very hard to fulfill a dream of uh, being in Israel, being a Zionist, being an Israeli. It was not easy. Hmm. And so, when when you were growing up in that, uh, I imagine apartment, you you wound up as a, as a family staying in Haifa. Well, we stayed for, in Haifa for the the, the first period, right. By 1981 or two, right. uh, we had moved to Ma'alot. Also in the north. Also in the north. Ma'alot is a development <laughs> right. town. It's, yeah. it's pretty close to the Lebanon border. Right. We uh, moved to Ma'alot. This is, a, your, sorry, your parents had already split up by, by yes. now? Okay. My parents had already split up. Uh, we were living with my dad. Uh, he discovered uh, Ma'alot. He might have uh, felt that it was uh, more economical to live right. in a development town. The rent would be less. Uh, maybe work would be available. Uh, and we moved 
we moved to Malot and we were, we were living there. Uh, I think that we arrived probably a year before the beginning, the outbreak of the first Lebanon war. Right, right. Uh, and Ma'alot was uh, not far from the border. We were under threat by the PLO, who were uh, in southern Lebanon at that time, and firing rockets into the northern, uh, northern region. And it got much worse towards the outbreak of the war. Right. Um, and that was my uh, teenage experience, was uh, growing up in Ma'alot. That was the, the, the most uh, impressive years, say from uh, age uh, 13, 14, till, um, till I finished the army at age 21. Right, it must have been. I mean, I'm just trying to think through this, you know, and, and maybe we'll get into this a little bit, but, but going from, from what seemed to have been a pretty stable existence in Long Beach, to rockets and shelters and, <laughs> and unrest and a difficult family situation in Ma'alot. Did you ever hear your dad say, you know, maybe this wasn't the right thing to do? Or was he always just like, this is where we need to be? Like, what, what was it like growing up that way? You know, my, my dad, I, don't, I do not think that he ever expressed the feeling of uh, making a mistake or regret coming to Israel. I think that he was, uh, he really believed in the idea, uh, but he did not make it in Israel. Uh, towards, um, towards the end of the 80s, uh, my dad had remarried. He and his wife, Clara, they've, both, they have both passed away since then. Okay. Okay. Uh, he and his uh, second wife, Clara, had two, uh, two babies, uh, and they were running a business, a store, a business. Yeah. What kind of store was it, by the way? Uh, Clara was an artist. She drew art, uh, and they opened a shop that made picture frames right. and uh, uh, developed pictures. Photographs. Photographs, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Got it. And uh, that, that was the main gist of their business. Yeah. Uh, but they were not very good in business, mm -hmm. and their business collapsed. Hmm. And at some point, they, they felt that uh, they would need to go to, back to the United States to survive. She was also American? No, she wasn't American. She uh -huh. was also a new immigrant right. from Romania. Oh, okay. Uh, and they went with their boys back to America very shortly after I married my wife, Molly. Right. So I had just completed the IDF service, the three-year service. What did you do in the army? Uh, most of my service, I was in the Rabbanut, in the chaplain corps. Oh, really? Corps. Yeah, yeah. Yes. My I, son did that. <laughs> great experience. The army is a great experience in general. Interesting. Important experience. Part of Israel's uh, social structure is serving, serving in the army. Yeah. So they went back. They, they went back, but uh, like many Israelis at uh, in in those years who left Israel because of financial distress and never really admitted that they had given up on Israel, would live in, Israel, in uh, the diaspora as if, um, not as a choice, but as a, a forced reality. Right. So if you ask, um, in spite of all of the difficulty, if my dad ever said that was not a good idea, 
I never heard that from him. Wow. That's pretty incredible, given, given everything that took place. We're, I mean, we're getting a, we're getting a, a fair picture of, of uh, what it was like growing up um, as uh, David Ivri. I want to I want to touch a few specifics, and maybe you'll help me understand a little bit more what it was like for you growing up. You mentioned the Soviet Jewry movement and Mayor Kahana, Zichron um, and your father's uh, somewhat of an affiliation with those two entities, which there was a lot of overlap there, right? Mary Kahana was very into helping the Soviet Jews. How did those kinds of things impact your worldview going, growing up? And, and I think you even were, were at, you at least knew Mayor Kahana, correct? I don't know how close you were or whatever. Maybe you can talk about that side of things and how that impacted where you are. You know what, before I, I answer the, that question, and sometimes I, I drift, so you can ask me again if I... That's fine. Uh, the, this is very, very relevant to the, the actually, uh, to the decision that my father reached that he wanted to move to Israel. Right. As he was uh, involved in the, in the temple, in the Jewish community, in the fight for Soviet Jewry. The Reform Temple in Long Beach. Yes, and he, he was organizing and going out to uh, demonstrations for Soviet Jewry uh, in the 70s. That was uh, something that, you know, Jewish people, they, they were concerned with Soviet sure. Jewry who were um, imprisoned in, in the Soviet Union, were not able to leave, and uh, they were not able to conduct their Jewish life. Uh, so my dad was very involved in that, and uh, I remember that a Jew, a Russian Jew, who succeeded in getting out of the Soviet Union, was touring and speaking at Jewish communities. In the U.S. In the U.S., mm-hmm. and this guy came to speak at the temple, and my dad was organizing, and, and I was there, I was a kid, it must have been, I don't know, nine years old. Right. And... Uh, at the end of the talk, my dad approached him and he said, uh, but why, why did you come to America? We, we were fighting so you could go to Israel. Why, why did you come here? So this Russian Jew looked at him and he said, you go to Israel. Why should I go to Israel? It's wow. hard to live in Israel. You are living in America. I want to live in America too. So that resonated to my dad and he said, wow, you know, we, we're, we're trying to help these people go and, and build up the Jewish population of Israel. And this guy's response makes sense. Maybe I really should go to Israel. And I think that that was the, the point where my dad decided that he was not only interested in being part of the Jewish community, but he wanted to be a, he's a, he was a Zionist. He wanted to build up Israel and he was going wow. to do it with his own family. I wonder what that guy is up to now. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I don't remember his name. I, I'm, yeah. I'm, uh. I'm kind of surprised that I remember the event because right. I was so, so young. Uh, when uh, we came to uh, Israel, I was a young, uh, young, young teenager. Uh, and uh, once we arrived here, my dad wasn't really so interested in, in all of those uh, Jewish things that, uh, that uh, he was interested in in the United States. He was less interested in the... Synagogue and Chabad and Rabbi Kahana, 
Right. And, you know, he, he felt, I guess, that he, he, he fulfilled the ultimate. He was here living in Israel. Yeah. So he didn't really need those other aspects anymore. Uh, but I had already been impressed. Uh, and, uh, and I thought that Rabbi Kahana was a hero too. Like my dad was a hero and Rabbi Kahana was a hero. And uh, as a, a young teenager, I reached out and connected with Rabbi Kahana and with the Kach movement, and I became involved. In, in, and I kind of brought my dad back in. You were at this point leading a Torah life or not yet? No, I wasn't. I, right. I, was, uh, I was very active in the Rabbi Kahana's movement from probably age 13, 14. Right. Uh, and... Uh, I was reading his books and reading other books and uh, um, on um, uh, Torah observance. And uh, so it was a, a process for me. Towards the end of high school, around age 17, I started becoming religious. Right. But, but 13, 14, 15, it's, like a, it's, a, it's an Israeli slash Jewish pride thing to you. That's what you're involved in. Yeah. It's not about Torah. No, no, it wasn't wasn't about Torah. It was more about the Jewish Jewish national pride, Jewish nationalism, and it led into that. It led into the direction. There were other elements, other things going on in the in the eighties, in the eighties in Israel, in the the later eighties in Israel, and surely in development towns like Maalot, right. there was something that was called the the Tshuva movement, the Tnuata Tshuva. Um, there were rabbis, like uh, some of them are still present, like yeah. Rabbi uh, Amnon Itzchak. Right. That was his, his rise to fame. And there were a whole line of other rabbis, like Rabbi Reuven Elbaz and Arachim, who brought out rabbis to speak about Torah observance and uh, being religious. And it was kind of like a a phase at that time. Uh, so I, I was influenced by, by both. Right, right. So as you're finishing high school, you are now Shomer Shabbat, and where are you? Like, what, what are you looking forward to? I mean, you have the army in front of you. Um, yeshiva was not something that you considered at that point, or like... What, and and who were you? Who was helping you out here? Your dad didn't have the background, so how is this all happening for you? You know, looking back, uh, it has dawned on me that growing up uh, in my uh, situation uh, as a, a child of uh, immigrants to Israel, right, uh, with uh, no expanded family here, right, really no no family and a broken home. Right. My parents had divorced, and my mom had gone back to the States. Uh, and uh, really, my, my dad was struggling financially. Uh, and I was living in a development town where most of the people were struggling financially. Um, and uh, I didn't really realize it for, for some years to come, uh, but I was a troubled youth. I yeah. was... Today they call it nor basikun. Right, youth at risk. Youth at risk. I, I was the, the youth at risk. 
I was in a lot of trouble. You ticked a lot of the boxes. All of the right? boxes. <laughs> I ticked all of the boxes, and I wasn't yeah. even aware of it. I thought it was totally, totally normal. Yeah. Uh, but I was in a very, very bad and dangerous uh, place. Uh, and uh, I had good friends who were also in a lot of trouble. Uh, and uh, most of them, all of them, were older than I am. Uh, and uh, I was blessed uh, with good friends who wow. were older than, uh, older than me. Uh, and uh, one of my friends, uh, his name was Shlomo Suisa. Uh, he passed away a year ago from uh, COVID. Uh, he was a very special, very, 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 we were very close. Uh, and he took me home to his family. Uh, they were like um, 98% of the families in Ma'alot. Right. They were Moroccan immigrants. Yeah. And they had a lot of kids. And uh, they were stable, but they weren't wealthy. Uh, and, uh, but all you're looking for is stability <laughs> at that time, right? That, that's right. And, and Shlomo, who was also in a lot of trouble at that time, he had already completed the army, uh, and I was uh, still in high school. He brought me to his home for Shabbat meal, for the Arab Shabbat meal. And it was a wonderful Moroccan meal and wonderful hospitality and very hum humble right. and kind people. His parents, his, uh, his mother's name was Hasiba and his dad was Mayer. And when we finished the meal, Mayer for, on every Shabbat meal would have the bottle of Mahia. Machia is Arak. Oh, okay, okay. He'd have the bottle of Machia, and he'd drink some of the Machia, and he'd become tired and, and go to sleep. Right. But before he went to sleep, he said to me, the morning meal is after the, the synagogue. It's at, be here at like 10 o'clock in the morning. And I was confused. I said, what do you mean be here at 10 o'clock? Right, synagogue you goes were till 12 o'clock, right? <laughs> no, I said, you were so kind to invite me for the, the meal oh. for Friday night. What do you mean be here at, at 10 o'clock? He said, we have a rule. If you eat with us on the evening of Shabbat, you have to eat with us on Shabbat during the day. Wow, what a nice way of saying that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, this, this family really adopted me. They opened their home to me. And uh, from that time on, I ate with them almost every Shabbat in the evening and the morning. Um, and at some point, all, all of the, what I've been telling, the, the Kahana movement and the Tshuva movement, and um, Shomo was also leading my way, uh, and he decided uh, to, uh, to become religious and uh, to move away from uh, some bad things that we were doing. Uh, and I, I owe him a lot of... Um, uh, he deserves a lot of credit for pulling me out of that situation. And th then I completed high school and I went into the army. Why did you choose the Rabbanut? Or why did the Rabbanut choose you? <laughs> <laughs> it was a, a funny, funny, uh, funny situation. I was uh, really considering, because of the, my nationalistic ideas, I was thinking of uh, serving in a, in a more, a, a more impressive type of unit, like in the Gorani or right. in the uh, border police. Uh, but at that time, I had started becoming religious, and uh, I had the impression that it would be more difficult for me to uh, 
to be observant that was very important for me at that time. So I chose to serve in the Rabbanut, providing religious services, and I felt that that would be easier for me at that time to be observant myself. Were you right? Um, I mean, at that time, was it difficult to be observant? Uh, it was difficult to be observant. Unit? I don't know what, uh, what would have happened. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like the butterfly effect. If, yeah, you, yeah. if I had done this, then everything yeah. else would have looked differently. Yeah. So I'm, I'm happy with the end results. So what did you do in the Rabbanut? What kinds of things did you do? In, in the Rabbanut, I was, it's called a Samaldat. Okay. Samaldat is, a, it's not, a, there are rabbis in the army. And there are, um, a samaldat is like in a, in a smaller unit where they don't have a rabbi on, on site, oversees all of the religious services. The synagogue, the, the kashrut, the shabbat, the iruv. Right. Making sure that everything is in place. And so you went to a bunch of different uh, bases, or you had one base that you were I was usually on? in one base. Yeah. I, I spent some time in the Golan, and I spent a lot of time in the Galil, which was not far from Malot. So did this experience strengthen your nationalism and your observance, or were you just like slow and steady? I don't know if it strengthened um, one way or the other. Um, I had a responsibility to, to do the service, and uh, it was important to, to do that. So it was just something that uh, had to be done. And, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. I did that. Now maybe we'll get to this in a few minutes, but you've been quite an activist over the years also. Is that activism brewing at this point? You, know, you mentioned that you were affiliated with Kach. Um, at the age of 13 and 14, I don't know what you're doing. Like maybe you're putting up flyers. Maybe I don't know. You're you know you're you're not running anything at the age of 13 or 14. When did the activism kick in, and and how have you seen your relationship with activism evolve over the years? I was actually a very act, very active, and had a lot of responsibilities from a very young age. Really, in the the Kach movement. Um, and I was active for, for many, many years um, through the political movements, seeing Rabbi Kahana elected to Knesset, seeing Rabbi Kahana expelled from the Knesset, um, being part of the yeshiva that Rabbi Kahana established, um, being very close with his son, Benjamin, right. who was married to my, married my wife's sister. Oh, really? Yes. Wow, and, I didn't know that. Um, and uh, then uh, taking on leadership, being, being um, uh, together with Benjamin in leadership uh, after Rabbi Kana was murdered, and uh, assuming leadership position after Benjamin was murdered by Palestinian terrorist with his wife Tali. And um, I've grown out of that. I believe very strongly in the, the Zionist idea of the, the historical connection and religious connection of the Jewish people to the land of Israel and the importance of the Jewish people being a sovereign nation in our historical ancestral homeland. But I, I feel that I've moved away from um, some of the, the very extreme uh, positions that uh, I had uh, 
I had felt in the past. I was very, very xenophobic mm. uh, towards, um, towards any, um, anyone different. I've lost that, uh, that feeling over the past years. Life is a process. Right. Throughout life, uh, we, we experience different things, we learn different things, we, we meet different people. I'm not sure how much of the um, extreme positions that I, I held at that time were a direct influence of Rabbi Meir Kahana, uh, or if the, the community around Rabbi Kahana and the preaching of the media was uh, taken on. They were pointing at, us and pointing at us and saying, you're racist. And maybe we were accepting that idea and saying, oh, they're, they're saying that we're racist. We should be racist. They're saying that we're fascist. We should be fascist. They're right. saying that we should hate everybody. We should. At some point, I, uh, I discovered that uh, a person can have, maybe, uh, have a, pr a proud uh, personal identity, a proud national identity, without denying the identity of others. Right. Which was not always clear to me. A person can be very set in his own, own identity and not be afraid of people who have other identities. How did you meet your wife? Ah, I met my wife uh, through a friend's. Is it after the army? No, it wasn't after the army. I was a single guy, young guy in the army. I had already become uh, religious. I wasn't religious as a teenager. Right. but. Uh, and now I'm on my own. Uh, my dad is remarried. Uh, his wife is very kind, and, uh, but still she's not my mom. And uh, she has her own two, two little kids. And uh, I felt that at that time, in being religious and being on my own, I need to have my own family. And uh, in the religious community, they have uh, what is called the shiduchim. <laughs> Is, uh, people introduce single yeah. people to, uh, and try to get them married. So I turned to different shadchanim uh, or shadchaniot, and I described my situation, and I um, had different offers, but nothing really, nothing was right. Yeah. I had a friend, I have a friend in the Golan from the Kach movement, from Rabbi Kahana's movement. His name is Michael ben Horin. Okay and his wife, Ariella. Uh, so I uh, was in the army, and I was inviting myself for Shabbat with the Ben-Hurin family. And they have a, a lot of kids. <laughs> uh, they were younger then. They had, I guess, 10 kids, a lot of babies, and uh, they're farmers in the Golan. They're very, very good people and interesting people. And uh, I decided that they were going to help me find my wife so I gave them an ultimatum. I said, listen, I'm going to land here every Shabbat and you're going to have to put up with me until you find me a wife. <laughs> so how many weeks did it take? It took some time, but they... they <laughs> and you were really there every Shabbat? I don't know if I was there every Shabbat, <laughs> but, but I, I was pretty persistent on, <laughs> on them figuring this out. And they, they did. Ariella said uh, she thought of uh, Aviva. Aviva is uh, my wife's mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, Aviva had uh, 11 children. She's married to a guy uh, who you should also interview. His name is Avraham Herzlich, okay. my father-in-law. He made Aliyah in the 60s. Wow, 
Right. Yeah, he's, he's an interesting guy. He's a shepherd. Really? He's a, a yes. Wow. He is a, a Jewish, a, he was a Jewish secular guy from Brooklyn who was a computer programmer in the, the a, what do they call that? The, uh, the huge computers that they had at the beginning in yeah, the 60s. Yeah, yeah. Mainframe. Yeah, yeah. He was a mainframe programmer in Manhattan. And he decided that he wanted to get out of, get out of there and, uh, and become a Jewish shepherd in the land of Israel. Anyway, uh, uh, Ariella said, Aviva has a daughter and maybe you should meet her daughter. And uh, she set up the, the meeting and I met Mari, my wife, and uh, Baruch Hashem. Well, and so how old were you when you got married? Mari and I were 21. And you, and you went where? Where did you go to live? We uh, stayed in, in Ma'alot for a short time. And I wanted to study in Rabbi Kahana's yeshiva in Jerusalem. Yeah. yeah. So we moved to Jerusalem. Right. We moved to Mitzpah Yericho for a short time. Then we were in Jerusalem. And then we moved to Kfar Tapuach. So talk about, talk about, and how many kids? We have eight kids. What's it like to raise kids in Kfar Tapuach? Kfar Tapuach. We came to Kfar Tapuach like Israel in the late 70s and early 80s as I described as being very small right. and very limited. Yeah. Judea and Samaria in the uh, 90s was very small, very remote, very limited. The roads were very narrow. Uh, and uh, when we came out to the Shamron, to Kfar Tapuach, Israel was in the middle of the first Intifada. There was right. a very violent uprising by the Palestinians uh, that uh, consisted of a lot of uh, rock throwing at moving vehicles. Jewish people riding on these very narrow roads with no lighting would often be surprised getting a huge rock thrown yeah. through their windshield. Uh, and the, the towns in Judea and Samaria were very small. When we came to Kfar Tapuach, there were 30 families. Uh, and uh, it was difficult to get there. It was difficult to get supplies. Uh, it was very cold in the winter. The homes were very small, trailer homes or these very small cement buildings called Ashkubiot. Right. But why'd you go there? Well, we went there because uh, we were a group of... Uh, young people, young couples that were part of Rabbi Kahana's yeshiva in Jerusalem. Right. And uh, our, uh, our group was not really welcome in most of the communities in Judea and Samaria. We were seen as troublemakers. Hmm. And uh, they, we were just not uh, really accepted. It was difficult for us uh, as individuals to... Um, to find a town in Judea and Samaria because of our reputation. Was, was it justified? I, I don't know. We could, we could discuss that. Was it justified? We weren't bad neighbors, right. usually. <laughs> but uh, any, any uh, community has uh, neighbor issues. Yeah. Uh, uh, but we were a, a rowdy, rowdy group, and we were in trouble with the law, um, and uh, we brought a lot of uh, media attention. 
that they wasn't uh, considered positive. Right. So maybe concern was uh, some concern was justified, but we didn't feel that uh, that just justice was being done. Sure. In any case, uh, we came. Uh, we were invited by this town, Kfar Tapuach. The town was collapsing. Mm. The community was collapsing. They, the town, uh, they had a very small population. Right. And they had a huge uh, fight within the community, within the people who lived there. People were not paying taxes. And the town was really about to collapse, which has happened before in other towns. There are kibbutzim and moshavim throughout sure. Israel that uh, the town, just, it just didn't work. And the population was changed. The places were deserted and rebuilt afterwards. So this town was nearly at that stage and uh, somehow they learned about our group and they said, you know what, bring your whole group and you can live here. So it was a great find for us well, and uh, we all did that. How many families was that? We were probably started with seven. Uh, well, it was a major impact on the 30 family community. It was a ma- Yes, it was definitely <laughs> a major impact on the town. We very quick quickly assumed leadership of the town and we made the place very lively and then people started to envy our success Interesting. and we were afraid of our growth and brought in other people. What was it like educating kids in a place like that? I mean, what, what was the school situation for your kids? School situation in Kvartapuach today after the success story of the town, yeah. uh, the town is 10 times larger than it was when we came. There are 300 families now. There are people waiting online to, to uh, rent homes. Wow. To, there's no room to build homes. They're waiting for new permits from the government. In the meantime, the town has built a school. The school is now eight years old or 10 years old, uh, grade, grade one to grade six. But when we came to Kfar Tapuach, the town was so small that they only had one kindergarten that was multi-age. <laughs> wow. Kids, uh, it's like the stories you hear about like Eastern Europe and the shtetl, yeah. right? Like everyone was in the same room. Everyone was, boys, <laughs> boys and girls all together. Yeah. Age three, four, five, and six wow. are all in the, the same. And they've hardly got 30 kids yeah. for that, that amount. Um, and all of the other older kids would all bus out right. to other schools in the radius around Tapur could be Yakir, Ariel, mm-hmm. Elon Moret, Itamar, eh, Shiloh, Eli, Beit El. Right. So it was very difficult for kids. So where did your kids that, go to school? Being that parents would send their kids to different schools. Right. A lot of the, the, there's a small group of kids who live in the town and they're, they're not seeing each other at school because the parents are sending them off to different schools, different right. towns. Uh, so it's very challenging. It was very challenging for kids. Very small population. You don't have a lot of choice of friends. Not a lot of activity. Being remote, far from town. Very, very different than uh, growing up in the uh, in the city in Jerusalem. Even Efrat or Beit Shemesh, or, right? Or Long Beach. <laughs> or Long Beach. <laughs> yeah, you can walk a couple of blocks and find a different group of friends, or right. go to a different type of activity. In a small place like Fartapuach, it's uh, very, very challenging. So, in the Haivri family, you had kids going to multiple yeshuvim for school? Um, I think that we tried most of the time to have them all going in the same, same direction. Right. It's, it's pretty common 
in the religious community in the Samaria to have boys and girls in separate schools. Right. Sometimes the schools might be in the same town, sometimes they might be in different towns. Um, so they, our kids did a lot of traveling, a lot of traveling, and, and still today there are very limited um, choices for high school. There are more than there were in the past. A lot of the kids are, are going out and staying in boarding schools, sure. which is very common in the religious community right. in Israel. Right. So My son's actually in Itamar. In Itamar. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he loves it there. Loves it there. I love it Good there. Good place. I wish I could live there. <laughs> it's, it's, go go and learn in the school. Yeah, yeah I, could use the, I could use the education too. Uh, and, and in terms of your career, like, okay, there's the activism and everything, but... You do have to put food on the table. So what has, your, what has your work life been like since you left the army? For a lot of years, I did different types of odd jobs. I did some building. I did some gardening. I, I ran some organizations, did some publishing. Um, in 20, 2007, uh, I ran a very successful campaign for the um, mayor or the chairman of the regional council. Uh, Gershon Masika was elected as the, the mayor of the regional council mm -hmm. and uh, from that time on he called me in to develop international relations for the Shamron Regional Council. Cool. I, I worked with that for a number of years in different, uh, different aspects, running, um, running delegations for Gershon and Yossi Dagan after him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, international delegations taking the head of the council to Washington DC to meet with American representatives or to London to the House of Lords or right. to the European Union uh, the European uh, the EU Parliament in Brussels right. uh, and uh, in dealing with fundraising for projects in the Samaria and doing a lot of uh, geopolitical tours as a guide, as a host for, for high-level dignitaries visiting the Samaria. Really important work. Important and interesting work. So yeah. I found myself a number of years leading a geopolitical tour in the Samaria for people like members of Congress, journalists, clergy, academics, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. college professors from around the world. Uh, giving them a, a one-day package explaining the settlements story, settlements in air quotes, yeah. Judea and Samaria from an Israeli perspective, uh, the industry, the building issues, the security issues, the history, the, the, uh, the uh, connection of the Jewish people to the land. Uh, and at some point, first of all, this, this project that was... Uh, started by the Shamron Regional Council. Uh, at some point, the government of Israel, the Ministry of Strategic Affairs, realized what we were doing, and they picked up on the project and decided to fund it, because they realized that what we were doing was very important for the... For the country. For the strategic affairs <laughs> yeah. of the country, to explain yeah. this position. Uh, and that was really great. We ran a lot of uh, these one-day tours in collaboration with the Ministry of Strategic Affairs. And at some point, I realized that I'm a guide. I'm standing out there in the open, and I'm pointing at hills and, and explaining and telling about history and uh, theology and 
uh, all different uh, things on the ground. Right. And in Israel, a tour guide is a licensed profession. So what I was doing was okay, although I did not have a license because I wasn't dealing with tourism. I was doing, working with Hasbara, diplomacy, and, right. and so forth. But uh, I really wanted to, uh, to have the ability to go out and, and do this throughout the country, not being limited to the Shomron alone. So I, uh, I looked for a school that uh, in Israel to get, to get the tourism, the tour guide license, you need to, you need to be apply and, and be accepted for a program that is overseen by the Ministry of Tourism. Sure. There are a number of schools that have the permit from the Ministry of Tourism to run the, the course. Today the course is a 14-month course. And in the beginning of 2020, I began the course at Yad Yitzchak Ben Svi, the, the Ben Svi Institute in Jerusalem. It's a very, very intensive course. It's like a, an MA really? in a year and a half. Wow. You need to learn everything about everything that has to do with the land of Israel from the beginning of time to this day, including geography, geology, flora, fanta, theology of all of the different religions, Amazing. anyone who has any connection. Now, I won't say that I remember all of that. But, <laughs> right, right. But, but you I've were taught. <laughs> I've touched all of that. Yeah. And, and there's a big, big exam at the end of the, the course. There are exams throughout every, every chapter that you learn. And yeah. then there's a big exam run by the Ministry of Tourism at the end. It's kind of like the bar exam. I was going to say, it's like smicha for, for, uh, for tourism. <laughs> yes, totally. <laughs> The, the exam, they run the exam at the Binyaneho Oma, at the conference center. Yeah. There are 700 people doing the exam wow. together. It's like a five-hour exam. Um, and then you can get the permit and you can guide anywhere in Israel. So I, I, got, the, um, I got my license a year and a half ago. And uh, I am um, guiding tours. And now living in Jerusalem as well. That's right. I'm now living in Jerusalem. So I want you to talk about that. You go from Kfar Tapuach. You know, I, we used to live in Kochav Yaakov, which I'm sure you heard of. And then when we decided to move to Beit Shemesh for a host of reasons, a friend of mine, Yishai Fleischer, I think you know him as well, he said, you're going to miss these hills. And boy, was he right. I still miss those hills. So do you miss the hills? Talk about the move from Kfar Tapuach to, uh, to Jerusalem. We, we lived in Kfar Tapuach for 30 years. Wow. We have a home there. We raised all of our children in Kfar Tapuach. We went through many, many, many experiences. And it wasn't clear that after so many years living at one place that we would be able to, to actually pick up yeah. and, and make the move. But we were ready, Mali and I were ready for a new scenery and new experiences. And I had become a tour guide. Uh, and I wanted to, and I want to spend more time guiding in Jerusalem. Uh, and it's a, I realized that it would be much easier for me to be located here. I can, uh, and that's what I've been doing. I can leave home, use the public transportation, get to the old city of Jerusalem in 20 right. minutes. Right. I can do a two-hour tour, have a falafel, go back home, <laughs> read a book, Go back to another two, and yeah. it's actually 
easier for me to take people to Judea and Samaria being based in Jerusalem. Interesting. Where in the past, if I was getting someone from Jerusalem, I would have to come from Tapuach to Jerusalem to get them, bring them out to the Samaria, bring them back to Jerusalem, and go back and, wow. back and forth twice. Yeah. And being based here, it's, just, it's much, much easier for me. So we're really enjoying, enjoying the new experience. Terrific. Really cool. All right. I, got, I want to shift gears. I want to ask you some what we refer to as rapid-fire questions. You can take as much or as little time to answer each one. You can just give the answer. You can explain an answer for 10 minutes. It's totally up to you. You ready? In the Ha'ivri home, Kedem or Israeli grape juice? In the Israeli home, we drink wine, Israeli wine. So the kids also, like they know that Friday night, it's wine. It's not grape juice. We don't, you don't yes, do grape juice. We don't, we don't do grape juice. Yeah. And, and when we did do grape juice, it was Israeli tirosh. <laughs> right, all right. Heinz or Israeli ketchup? Not too much ketchup. If there is, Israeli. Uh, what's the Israeli food you love the most? I am a big falafel and shawarma guy. Uh, depending on, um, on my appetite uh, and my mood, yeah. it would probably be one or the other. Right, right. And is there an Israeli food that Israelis like, love so much and you're like, I don't, I don't see how they can actually like that, that garbage? <laughs> you know, I, I can't figure out the sabich. <laughs> to me, a sabich is a falafel without falafel. And I just, it, it doesn't make sense to me. But to each his own. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so you came here when you were 11. Uh, the Israeli Hebrew accent is something that was not automatic for you, but do you have it? Did you have to work to have it? Talk about that a little bit. My, my, uh, my accent in my spoken language, to my understanding, in English, I have an Israeli accent, and in Hebrew, I have an American accent. <laughs> like you've lost. And, and it wasn't <laughs> always that way. Huh. I, I, growing up in Israel, I came to Israel when I was 11 years old, uh, although I was very excited about being part of this Zionist dream yeah. and being in Israel, and it was real, very important for me, picking up the Hebrew was very hard for me. And it took me a very long time to become a Hebrew speaker. It might have taken four years, might have taken five years. Yeah. But once I picked it up, and I was in Ma'alot, and all of my friends were Israelis, I stopped speaking English. I only spoke English at home. Right. I wasn't home that much. Right. And I'm pretty sure that at that period of time, between age 15 and 20-something, when I was speaking only Hebrew, and we speak only Hebrew at home, my wife and I and my children. My children, are, my children who know English know it on their own. They did not learn it from me. Interesting. And they're, they're not too happy with me for say, not teaching yeah. them English. <laughs> so for many years when I only spoke Hebrew, I'm pretty sure that I had lost my American accent in Hebrew hmm. altogether. Right. But later on, when I started reviving my English for my work, right. working right. in diplomacy, yeah. traveling abroad, speaking with people, guiding tours, 
and I've brought my English back, my American accent has reappeared in my Isn't Hebrew. That interesting. And, and you said your wife's father is American also. Yes. Right? So you guys could have easily spoken to each other at home in English. And yes. you made a conscious decision for Hebrew. Yes. My, my father-in-law also speaks Hebrew with his children. Interesting. Okay. It's a philosophical thing. I guess so. Yeah, yeah. Um, any pet peeves about life in Israel? Something that drives you crazy? I'm not talking about the big stuff. <laughs> I'm talking about little things. I, I'll tell you the truth that I do not, I do not miss uh, America. Um, I don't know if I ever really missed... Uh, missed anything American. Um, I'm very comfortable being in Israel. This is my place. I don't lack American products or American services. Uh, personally, I feel that I'm, I'm in my place. Okay. Wow. Um, what brings you to tears of joy or pride in Israel? Um, I'm very proud of, very, I am very proud of my children. I'm very proud of who they are and of their accomplishments. And uh, I, I love them very much. And uh, I'm a grandfather. I, I love seeing my grandchildren. That's my, I guess, my, my, greatest, my greatest joy. <laughs> I look forward to those days myself. Amen. Your favorite place to be in Israel? My favorite place to be in Israel, I love Israel. I love it all. Uh, I am uh, very excited about being in Jerusalem. I spend a lot of time guiding tours and touring on my own, wandering around in the old city of Jerusalem, in all parts of the old city of Jerusalem. Um, it's so exciting for me every time I walk on every path. I, I'm always seeing new angles of things that I haven't seen before. Um, so I'm very, very happy being here in Jerusalem. But I enjoy every, every different place in Israel. I, even I'll share even with you, Haifa? I was going to say even Tel Aviv. Go ahead. I did this uh, Israel tour guide course. In, uh, in the Israel tour guide course, there are 66 tour days, full tour days. Right. And a, a tour day in the Israel tour guide course is from 6.30 in the morning until 6.30 in the evening. You get on the bus at 6.30 in the morning. <laughs> you get off the bus at 6.30 in the evening if you're not late, if the bus is not yeah, late. That's a serious day. So it's a very serious day. And it's a day with the, the best tour guides in Israel, the real, real academics who lecture nonstop for this entire 12-hour experience. So every tour day of these 60 days is like three regular tour days. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the idea is to bring the students of the tour guide course to touch every different place, or you can't touch all of the places in a lifetime. Right. And there are, in the tour guide course, there are days in Tel Aviv. Before I did that, I did not appreciate Tel Aviv, yeah. as I do after I experienced those days and we learned about Tel Aviv. It wasn't clear to me before that what, what's in Tel Aviv, what culture, what history, what interest, but now I, I love even Tel Aviv. Wow, isn't that interesting?
such a such an illustration of uh, of the idea that that in, in order to really like something you have to know it you have to be aware of what uh, what's going on there <laughs> three choices strength patience or humility mm. which helps you most with life in Israel strength patience or humility got to choose one that, that's a hard one uh, I, I would uh, I would say patience pa- patience you need, you need patience you can't uh, we're, we're in Israel Israel is in the Middle East they, this is a although we're a Western democracy and uh, we we have a, a, we're open to to a pluralistic uh, ideas uh, things take time things are not they, we can't solve everything right now. We, we need to try, we need to be persistent, persistent, but we also need to have patience and, and know that it, it takes time to, uh, to learn new things, to meet new people, to be accustomed to the situations. Um, so we need patience. You mentioned before that you really don't, you don't need anything American in your life. Is there anything you miss from, uh, from your childhood? That you, you know, anything that that you enjoyed back then and you like Tal Brody for example he said there's a pizza place in Newark that he uh, he really loves <laughs> is there anything you miss from uh, the States? you know I really like Kentucky Fried Chicken <laughs> and but they had it here for a while they, though they actually had it here for a while and and it closed and now they have Kentucky Fried Chicken in the Palestinian Authority which is not kosher right and they're talking about opening a new Kentucky Fried Chicken franchise in Israel that also will not be. Oh, maybe yeah. they've already opened. Oh, okay. But it's not kosher either, so I don't... Uh, was, how was it? I've never had it in my life. What, it's delicious? I, I liked it. <laughs> but my, my kids are very good cooks, and sometimes they make Kentucky Fried Chicken. My wife is actually very happy that I do not have the, the choice to eat Kentucky Fried Chicken <laughs> right. because she thinks that it's not healthy. I was say, she and, probably wants to be married to you a little longer. Yeah, That's right. She's probably right. <laughs> Two more questions and then I'm going to let you go. Uh, is Aliyah for everyone? Is Aliyah for everyone? That, that's I mean, a good question. No one would understand this question better than you given everything that's taken place with your family. You know, I, they, this will be, could be a bit of a long answer. Go ahead. And uh, asking me if Aliyah is for everyone brings me back to, to something that I did not elaborate on earlier. And that is my dad's choice to make Aliyah. Now, the, the end of the story is that it, it, paid, it worked very well for me. So I am glad that he made this decision. Sure. Was it a good decision for him? Was it a good decision for his marriage? I think not. My, my dad was struggling in the United States. He was struggling with his marriage. He was struggling financially. And uh, he came to Israel really with no means to support his family. Uh, and ultimately, he, uh, his ability to be here uh, collapsed. He, he needed to return yeah. to America. So he wasn't prepared. And uh, it, wasn't a good, it was not a good decision for him at the time. He would have received more support from his family and from his surroundings and he spoke the language and it would have been easier for him to find, find work. 
And I say that with a heavy heart, surely to the listeners, because I do not want to discourage people from making Aliyah. Uh, and uh, I also mentioned that my own personal perspective in general has evolved, has changed. At one time, I was very extreme in my views, and I believed that black and white, all Jewish people need to live in Israel. Uh, and I still believe that Israel is the place for all Jewish people. But it's not it's so simple. Right. It's not so simple. So I encourage people to live in Israel, and I would love all the people to live in Israel. It's, even, it's hard for me to say that Aliyah is not for everyone. It's yeah. hard for me to say that. Yeah. I think you've made your point, though, that it, maybe it's, it's for everyone, but it's not for everyone at every moment. You have to find the right timing, right? I'm very happy that uh, Jewish people connect with their heritage and they connect with Israel as part of their heritage and that, that uh, people have that connection and want to be here. People need to uh, establish themselves in Israel in a way that's uh, sustainable for them. David Ivri, thank you very much for your time and for returning again to your story. And uh, it seems your story is continuing to unfold with new beginnings. And so I wish you only success. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And I hope that uh, my story is uh, inspiring to someone. Your listeners are welcome to reach out to me if ah, I can be yeah. of any help. What's your email address? I'll put my, it in the description also. My email is my name, Haivri, H-A-I-V-R-I. And uh, I'm also present at, on at social media. Oh, H-A-I-V-R-I at gmail.com. Oh, okay. There aren't so many of those out there, right? <laughs> okay. Thank you very much.